You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today starts a week-long global climate strike, leading into the UN Climate Action Summit, which starts on Monday. Thousands of events are planned in more than 120 countries. The mass walkout of students and young people began in Australia and was the largest the country has yet seen. The Economist is taking this moment to examine the processes that force climate change and how they're built into the very foundations of the global economy and of geopolitics. We will take a look at the history of climate research and the strengths and weaknesses of the computer models that predict what's next. We'll examine how simply adapting to the change as it comes presents its own risks. And we'll look at how climate-minded artists are adding their voices to those of scientists and politicians. The 20th century was a time of massive transformation for humanity. The internal combustion engine radically changed transportation. Electric lights swept back the darkness. Explosives and fertilizers became cheap and plentiful, sparking revolutions in mining, warfare, and farming. The raw materials for products from forklifts to plastic forks became commodities. In no previous century had the global population or GDP doubled. In the 20th century, Humanity's number nearly doubled twice, GDP four times. The billions of tons of fossil fuels that powered this growth in human capabilities, this staggering wealth generation, now threaten, if not the planet itself, then at least most of its people. Yet the concerns, the scientific debates, and the outright misinformation that characterize climate conversations today aren't new. They go back to the first years of that transformative century. Although CO2 was known to be a greenhouse gas, there was a fairly widespread belief in the early part of the 20th century that almost all of it would be sucked up by the ocean. Oliver Morton is our briefings and essays editor and has been writing about climate change for years. Now, there were people who didn't quite believe this, but by and large, people thought that it couldn't really be a problem because the ocean would take care of it. It was in the middle of the 20th century that a few scientists began to question that assumption. Roger Avell was a spectacularly entrepreneurial oceanographer, and oceanographer is far too small a term for quite what he did. In the 1950s, he became interested in these issues, and he showed with a colleague, Hans Suess, that the ocean wasn't absorbing all the world's carbon dioxide. And he also set up a program whereby a brilliant young student of his called Dave Keeling 
could measure carbon dioxide in Hawaii that would give a proxy for the carbon dioxide level all around the world. And these were the first measurements that showed definitively that carbon dioxide levels were rising. It was when he saw the data from Hawaii and elsewhere that Ravel realized that, in his words, there was a giant experiment going on with the planet and that warming was more or less inevitable. And so even by that time, they realized and were trying to make others realize that CO2 levels were were a problem, were going to become a problem. I think in the 1950s, it's fairer to say that they thought CO2 levels were going to become an issue than were going to become a problem. They thought, among other things, that problems in the Earth system were things that could be solved through technological fixes rather than through, you know, rewiring the whole industrial economy. So how long was it before people realized just how serious the impact of climate change could be? The climate is an extraordinarily complicated thing, and not all climate scientists at that stage thought that the greenhouse effect would be that important, and not all climate scientists at that stage thought that other effects might not be more important. People still didn't fully understand the role of the sun in the climate. They didn't have very good records of past climate. They were also worried about aerosols, which are little floaty particles in the air which cool the planet rather than warming it. And there was a fairly lively debate in the early 70s about whether human-caused cooling or human-caused warming would win out. It's only towards the end of the 1970s that the climate community starts to get genuinely a bit alarmed. And even then, they don't have any clear evidence that carbon dioxide has yet changed the Earth's climate. That doesn't come really until the 1990s. What is the scientific view on that question today? Today, there is no real scientific doubt that a significant part of the warming scene over the past century, and quite possibly all of it, is down to human causes. Yet there is doubt among parts of the public. Some of it was nurtured from early on by the fossil fuel industry when it became clear that their products were implicated in a global worry. Almost half of total CO2 emissions from fossil fuels happened after 1990, after a scientific consensus had been reached and governments had begun promising to do something. Even today, though, there are those who benefit from doubt about climate change. They reel off spurious arguments about natural climatic variation or imprecision in climate models. There is, inevitably, some uncertainty in scientists' predictions about what will play out in the world's climate system. More uncertain, though, is what will play out among its people. Start with one incontrovertible fact. The planet is getting hotter. Since the Industrial Revolution, global average temperatures have warmed by roughly one degree Celsius. Katrine Brake is our environment correspondent. We're seeing lots of effects of that. The Arctic is maybe the most visual, so the Arctic ice sheet is melting extremely quickly. And then further south, where more people live, there's an increased incidence of extreme weather events, droughts, floods, etc. So if we're already now with one degree of warming, where, where will things go next? How far do you think this goes? So that's an incredibly difficult thing to predict, right? Climate scientists do try and answer that with climate models. But what goes into those climate models is incredibly complex and relies on a huge number of variables, not least of which is human behavior. Why so complex, though? Well, if you think of it, what the ask here is to simulate a incredibly detailed and accurate reproduction of 
all of the processes that are happening around the planet, around all of the natural systems around the planet at any given time. So everything that's happening in the atmosphere, everything that's happening on land, everything that's happening in the oceans. Obtaining that data on the level of detail that we need is obviously a huge task. Another considerable source of uncertainty, I think this is what most people think of when they think of climate uncertainty, are sudden non-linear shifts in the system that suddenly make everything take off in a much faster rate than previously. So an example of this would be in the Arctic, there are huge stores of carbon frozen in the soil, what's known as permafrosts. Obviously, as the world is warming, the Arctic is also warming. Those soils are melting and they run the risk of releasing vast quantities of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. We don't know if and how fast this will happen because it's by definition a rare event. So it's very difficult to predict. There are other such tipping points that are incredibly difficult to predict, but that have huge implications for humans. So there are these as yet imperfect theories, this dearth of data, these sort of unknown, worrisome tipping points. But you also mentioned the the human element. What do you mean? Yeah, so this is really the main source of uncertainty. We know that the world is warming and we know that it will continue to warm. We don't know by how much because we don't know how humans will respond to that threat. And that could determine everything. So, so far, governments have put a number of promises to act and to cut emissions on the table. But for the last decade, scientists have been translating those promises into temperatures by the end of the century. And frankly, the needle hasn't moved a whole lot, right? It stayed roughly steady at somewhere between three and three and a half degrees Celsius of warming by 2100. So that sounds hopeless, right? It sounds like nothing's ever going to change. That's not the reality of it. The reality is there is a lot of scope to push that needle downward. There is a lot of scope to bring the warming back down to these 1.5, 2 degrees targets that everybody's talking about. But they require a huge amount of government, societal, business action, which at the minute is not yet on the table. So... We're starting to see the signs of this. A number of countries are starting to commit to cutting emissions down to net zero by 2050, which is what the scientists say needs to happen. If we're talking about uncertainties, will they or will they not achieve that by 2050? Who knows? And also, individual countries on their own can't do that much. What you need is for that to tip into global action. You need all governments on board, all major governments on board in order to do that. Well, what about citizens and and protesters? I mean, today, the global climate strike starts. There's uh, Extinction Rebellion, the Sunrise Movement, uh, a new climate hero in the form of Greta Thunberg. Do you think that kind of organized activism will make a real difference? Yeah, so another who knows. Um, Although I would say that I think the social action that's happening right now is contributing to a political awareness. We have been here before. We've seen movements like this before. And I think it is a bit of a wait-and-see game to see whether that peters out. The one thing that I do think is different now is that there's a generational change. So we now have a younger generation that has grown up, been taught by teachers who never questioned the reality of climate change, who are coming of age to vote and to be employed and have a real environmental awareness and a real need for the world to change. Generational change will certainly alter the world's response to a changing climate. But for lots of people, 
that's not fast enough. All this discussion has been about what's called mitigation, policies and technologies to curb or capture greenhouse gases to mitigate its myriad effects on the planet. Another response is adaptation, simply getting ready for what's coming. And that approach comes with its own risks. So adaptation is the set of all actions to make our lives tolerable amid ongoing inevitable climate change. Ryan Avent writes Free Exchange, our column on economic theory. Examples of adaptation would include building houses to withstand stronger storms, building levees and dikes to control floodwaters, using more agricultural technologies that can handle more extreme temperatures and precipitation events, that sort of thing. So adaptation is, is a strategy that's being undertaken right now already. It is something that we're all doing right now. Uh, you know, the advantage of adaptation is that it isn't something that requires broad coordination across lots of governments. It's something that, you know, all of us do when we take sort of everyday decisions. If, you know, we think about our homes and whether we need to invest in more insulation or a new air conditioning system to deal with higher temperatures. Uh, if we think about where we're going to live when we're buying a house, whether we want to live on the coastline or near a river in a floodplain or someplace that's a little bit farther away from bodies of water that might experience higher levels because of excess rainfall or sea level rise. So all these little decisions are things that help prepare society for the change that's coming and would fall under the category of adaptation. I mean, those are the kinds of decisions that can you know, be taken as decisions in the rich world. I mean, what about the places in the developing world which are often more subject to climate change? Well, this is a hugely important point because adaptation is going to have to be something that humanity does to handle climate change. But there's a big difference in how easily and how readily rich world countries can do it relative to those in poor parts of the world. You know, there are adaptation strategies that are available to those places. An example from the developing world would be efforts in Bangladesh, for instance, to secure low-lying cities, to put in place basic flood control measures, to try to prevent salt water from getting into the, you know, the soils that are used for agriculture as the sea rises, those sorts of very basic things to make sure they have enough food to feed people and so on. But the simple truth is they just have, poor countries have a lot less they can do. So we've been talking about the, the estimates about, uh, about what's going to happen, the uncertainties therein. How does adaptation fit in? How much of a difference to the, the sort of overall climate change effects do you think adaptation could have? Well, the, the best estimates suggest that they can make a huge difference, that in some cases it's the difference between something like a disaster and it not being all that big a deal. So just to take one example, there was a piece of research that came out last year that looked at the estimated economic losses from coastal flooding. And those losses are estimated to be, by the end of 2200, equal to about 4.5% of GDP, which in 2200 is going to be tens of trillions of dollars. On the other hand, if you run that same analysis but assume that people are going to adapt, are going to migrate in response to climate change, the damage is 0.1% of GDP, which is quite a bit smaller. So this potentially ends up being a huge part of the response, a hugely important part of making sure that climate change isn't an utter catastrophe. But, I mean, that's a significant difference. The 0.1% might sound to some people like not that big a deal, that if all they do is build a seawall and, uh, you know, get double glazing and better insulation, then, you know, we needn't worry about this thorny mitigation problem. Well, this, I think, is the thing that's unappreciated about adaptation. It's a thing that I worry a lot about, which is that you have advanced economies that have a lot of ways to respond to climate change, a lot of money available to invest in adaptation, and... 
it's possible that in doing all that, they make it so the costs to them of climate change are not particularly high, particularly not over the next century or so. And so they just lose any sense of urgency about actually reducing emissions and making sure the globe doesn't warm up too much. And what that then does is place the people in the countries, and there are billions of them, who can't afford to do quite extensive adaptation directly in harm's way. Uh, it ends up making the situation much worse for them, and that would be a, a, a real human tragedy. Oliver, you've been following the climate change story, its history, the science, for quite some years. I have. Are you hopeful about the future? I'm not in general hopeful about the future and climate change does nothing to alter that perspective. I am, however, hopeful that there are things that are not being done that could be done and that with sufficient and best-directed efforts they can be done that will improve the outlook that we have. There's a famous routine by the American comedian George Carlin, which goes around the idea that the planet is fine, the people are fucked. And that's basically the message of climate change science. The planet goes through a lot over four billion years of history, and this isn't going to be the worst thing. It's hard to say what is the worst thing for a planet. It's a planet, right? I mean, it doesn't really have views as to how bad things are. For people, however, climate change can be very bad. I don't mean that it will drive the race extinct, but it can cause massive suffering on the scale of the worst wars or worse. And that's the sort of thing that you really want to do something to avoid. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Artists have long protested against ideas or politics they've disliked from the anti-bourgeois Dadaists of the early 20th century, who railed against the rules of art itself. To anti-consumerist, culture-jamming artists such as Banksy and Russian punk rock activists Pussy Riot. Throughout history, some artists have attempted to shift opinions and spur action. But how do artists protest against the biggest problem in human history? There are very, very, very few, if any, climate change deniers among artists. Fiametta Rocco is The Economist's culture correspondent. Nature painting, you know, which has a very, very long history, was really about nature as the hand of God. Climate change art, it's all about the hand of man. You see it everywhere. The Venice Biennale is full of it. Every other art fair that you go to is equally packed. It seems to be the thing of the moment. But there are complications in it. First of all, the art world is incredibly extravagant with 
people flying in on private jets to fashionable exhibitions. So they're really not in a position to be able to be preachy or have the upper hand in the argument about climate change. They're also incredibly divided over what makes good art. So how do you mean? How, how are the divisions made apparent at the fringes? The best-known climate change artist in the world is probably Olafur Eliasson, a Danish Icelandic artist who brought us the Weather Project, flooded the Turbine Hall at Tate Modern with yellow light and was the first of the great exhibitions. But, you know, the people who go and see it are really already converted. It's not as if he's changing anybody's mind really very, very much. The more interesting art projects, to my mind, are those that are really working in local communities, helping people to change their habits, change the way they live, change the way they think. And and what do you think are good examples of effective, interesting climate change art? A pair of artists who work under the name Cooking Sections, they have started a project in the tidal zone off the Isle of Skye where they have an oyster table which is underwater when the tide is high and when the tide goes out, it reveals itself as a sort of dining room where they serve climate-appropriate food. What they want is that they want people to become climavores rather than being herbivores or carnivores. They want people to change their eating habits, to eat locally sourced produce and to change it according to the seasons. And so does it work? Does it, does it change minds? Well, it certainly seems to be working on Sky. I mean, they have convinced several really important Sky restaurants, and it's an incredibly foodie place. But they persuaded these restaurants to take farmed salmon off the menu. Farmed salmon is a real problem for the ocean floor. It's incredibly degrading, and it's very, very bad for sea life. They have gone into the high school where they're teaching new kinds of cooking, new kinds of menus. They've persuaded some of the island's major chefs to offer apprenticeships to kids to teach them. So there's a lot going on. Where does climate change art fit in? What's its place in the the lineage of art? I think climate change art really comes less out of nature art and more out of the great protest art movements that sprang up after the Second World War, movements like Fluxus and the other movements that we've come to know. And I think in that sense, where they are most successful in effecting change is where they can change people's thinking without being preachy. The moment they become preachy, hypocritical or overcomplicated in the art that they're trying to produce, that is where it fails. Where it's most successful is when it has a simple message that looks extraordinary, that really changes the way people think. So if the idea is to be high-minded without being heavy-handed, then one might look to the science, right? The, the, another way to convince people might be to, to rely on research and the consensus of scientists. Do you think art has a greater potential to change minds or, or a greater potential to change different kinds of minds? I don't think it's something that can be measured in that way. But art as an appeal to the imagination, an appeal to the visual, an appeal to the oral, of course affects people in different ways. And there will be people who are deeply affected by research statistics, just as there will be people for whom statistics will make their eyes just gloss over. Fiumetta, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.